0: Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard.
1: Well, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: First of all, how did you get into the 14er stuff? Because you're a Southern boy.
1: Yeah, I grew up um, in Atlanta. Um, I'd been working uh, at the time for Patagonia, the clothing brand, uh, through their retail operation in the Atlanta store. Um, and they had a, an internship program where they would basically pay an employee to leave work for up to two months and volunteer their time for a nonprofit. And I. <laughs> and that it... sounds like Patagonia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like doing it right. Well,
0: did you ever hear the. Um... How I built this with Patagonia
2: I read Yvonne's book,
0: oh yeah, I mean, and it was so fantastic story. i mean great, is it what's it like working for the company?
1: Different, um, you know, working for a retail sure. employee, you don't have the same flexibilities as you do, like, you know, the, the book that you read, When My People Go Surfing, Yeah, it talks a lot about, like, the corporate environment that they have of, like, yeah, if you're getting your work done, it's cool if you go, the surf is, surf is up, like, let's go down and surf a few waves and then come back or, like, take off to go do some epic uh, adventure, like, it's all encouraged. At the retail level, like, you got to be yep. there, in, in, you know, day in and day out sort of stuff, and you're working the holidays. Um, but they still have a lot of programs, and they work on, like, developing employees even at that level.
2: We so. just did an episode on, like, best and worst. Yeah. What's, like, the worst
1: thing in retail? Returns after holiday season. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <a good> <laughs> right. they, they take a long time, right? Like, you got to type in all that information, and then people are not always, like, and you have to wait in line. To for... waiting in yeah. line to do that. So. It's the is the
0: second worst time when they're all buying it at holiday season and it's just a frenzy?
1: That's not so bad. I mean, maybe it's a different like environment being at a Patagonia store versus a JC Penney's or a Macy or something like people were usually more respectful and like actually interested in engaging and having you talk to them about like the performance of the product and how it's going to work and that sort of thing. So, those days would go pretty quick, which
0: is Well, nice. Patagonia has the whole like lifetime guarantee, correct? Yeah, the ironclad guarantee. Is that on every piece of clothing they sell? Yeah. So if you get a return, at least you don't have to deal with that, right? Like to where you're, oh, it's past the uh, 30 days or you don't have your receipt. Like if it says Patagonia on it, you can just help them out, right?
1: Correct, yeah. You, you get into these situations where like essentially if someone is not happy with the way that the product performed – they can return it, even if they've worn it, and you know. <laughs> yeah. So, buy a seven hundred dollar ski jacket. You go wear it for your ski trip for a week, and then you come back to Atlanta, and you're like, Yeah, maybe I want to get my money back or trade it in for something else. And so, you kind of have to have this like conversation about like, Well, you know, if it didn't if it didn't perform the way that you wanted yeah. it to, we'll take it back. So, and at that point, you can't resell it. Um, so, fortunate for the retail employees. Uh, it's oh, not, you get it's that. not a resellable. So then it goes into a becomes a demo. Everyone gets to buy it. The most you the most you would pay for an item.
2: Uh, is fifteen dollars. So, oh man, that makes those <laughs> post holidays worth yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Do you oh, remember when regret. the lady bought the, brought the Christmas tree, the live Christmas tree, back to Costco a few years back? No. You know, because Costco they take they take everything back.
2: Surprise! You haven't. Do you done remember, something
0: Do you like remember that? that? No. So she bought a live Christmas tree, and then there was you know somebody recorded it, and then it kind of went viral. But she brought it back and said it died. <laughs>
2: So that's awesome. Work I'm me, actually shocked that you haven't you, done something like that. You, <laughs> man, that's <laughs> come on. I have
0: some standards. <laughs> yeah, but she she brought it back and she got just roasted. But you know, Costco, whoever was working that day, crushed. They should have gave. They should yeah. given them a bonus because they took it back. They did it, and in the end, it just gave Costco a ton of positive yeah. advertising. But yeah live christmas tree wow. and I, that's it died awesome. i don't like it i will not give my money back
2: my brother went to uh university of colorado boulder yeah. and he you know broke college kid and he would uh go to rei and be like yeah i want to go mountain biking today and he would like buy shoes yeah and then return them like when he was yeah. done <laughs> <laughs> there's you like got... a rental
1: program probably something, nah, right
2: nah, uh, yeah rentally free yeah you know so then uh how did you get into the 14 or stuff
1: So the the internship program that I did, I actually came out here and I interned with the Colorado 14ers initiative. So Uh um, I spent two months in the summer of uh, 2013 or 2014. Uh, I was working, you know, basically I'd work one week in the office helping them with communications, uh, rebuilding website, um, just general kind of administrative tasks in the office. And then I'd get to go out into the field and actually kind of get experience I'd work on one of the fixed site projects or I'd help lead a volunteer project. What was your first one? The first 14er I did was Quandary Peak. I think it was the first week I was out here, actually.
2: Oh, no kidding. Surprise. Yeah. came from Atlanta, <laughs> and now you're <laughs> yeah. right.
1: Yes, surprise.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh. So I've done a few, and I'm always impressed that on the trail you get towards the peak and you'll see like a railroad tie or something like that that you know some dude had to haul all the way from the bottom. I mean, that's what you guys do, right? Like, you guys are mainly doing trail maintenance. You guys, like, what else do you guys do?
1: Yeah, so the two main branches of how the organization started was, you know, stewardship work, so trail maintenance, uh, and hiker education as well. Um, The trail maintenance, yeah, we utilize... Um, all primitive tools a lot of times we're working in designated wilderness areas so you can't even run chainsaws you're using cross cut saws um, so it's all primitive hand tools um, moving rocks and lumber um, yeah how do
2: you get people to do that uh,
1: it's a it's a unique position you know you, we, we do pay people to do the, the position there's professional trail builders that you know seek these jobs out with us um, and then a lot of times the grunt work we're doing with volunteers uh you know less like skilled Interns. labor you yeah, can get get volunteers experience. to yeah. move rocks and lumber for you
2: i mean i saw on your website like you need years and years of trail building experience to to get some of those positions yep. what kind of training do you have to go through to like learn how to build trails it seems like an easy thing but i assume that it is
1: not no, the, the people that are kind of at our upper level of, like, field programs have been doing this for over a decade. Um, I've got three people on our team that are in director and manager roles, um, and they've been working, I think, 12 to 15 years doing this sort of work. Um, a lot of times they'll start off, and, and where we kind of get our pipeline for new recruits is through um, youth cores. So mm. there's programs um, all across the country for youth cores. But they'll have kids that are anywhere from like 18 to 23 working on these projects, um, and we contract them out. So we have, you know, the really high, highly skilled paid professionals, and then they work alongside a youth core crew.
2: Did a lot of these start out as game trails?
1: Or did you guys like say, hey, this is the best route up, let's just do that? So in 1994, when our organization was founded, there were only two planned routes on all the 14ers. We have 58, 54, or 58 14,000 foot peaks in the state of Colorado. Um, Pikes Peak had a planned trail and Longs Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park had a planned trail. So everything else was socially created. People basically showed up to the trailhead and they took the path of least resistance, which, if you've hiked a 14er, especially one that we haven't rebuilt a new trail on, it's usually straight up, you know, fall line, kind of a miserable slog. Um, and then we go in and with help from the Forest Service, who is ultimately the land manager, you know they're planning the new route over several years, and then we hire the staff and uh, raise the money to actually build the new trail, which is incorporating switchbacks and utilizing rock structures and things to really fortify the the soil and retain. So
0: when you when you do this maintenance or you have a project going on, to get to the location that maybe you're working on, it could take a couple hours or more. So yeah. are you are our guys just staying on the mountain? Yeah. And then you're provide you know, whatever the, the foods provide, just, I mean, going up and down is just not feasible, right? Correct.
2: This episode is brought to you by us, more importantly, our Patreon, and most importantly, our Patreon members. If you like what you're hearing, think about joining us. Head on over to the-standard.us, and for as little as $3 a month, you can get extra episodes, discounts on gear monthly conference calls. So head on over to our site at the-standard.us and remember to always like and subscribe. Back to the show.
1: Yeah, we so we have fixed site projects which are usually multi-year projects. Like we just started one in 2022 that's going to be about a 6-year, 1.5 million dollar project. There's actually two groups of four people working on that mountain. Um and they live there over the course of the summer. So there's one, one group of four that's working lower down in the timber line. They're dropping trees and cutting new uh, tread through the forest. They have a base camp that's set up down by the trailhead and then they hike up to their work site each day. The higher crew, I mean, they work at 13,500 feet every day. so their base camps set up kind of right at tree line. Um, they're in there for eight days at a time and then they're off. What's,
0: um, that, what's six that camp days. look like? It's a lot like you would see on on say like documentaries with people hiking. Those larger mountains, you know, like like a not I know it's probably not looking like Everest, but just like a base camp like that.
1: Yeah. So they've got a large canvas wall tent. Um, I think it's usually 18 by 20, 20 by 20. That kind of serves as their like base of operations. They've got double propane burner stoves in there. They've got a kitchen table where they can eat and cut, prepare vegetables and food and stuff. That's surrounded by a big electric bear fence um, to keep yeah, all that, that stuff in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know they've got, like, water purification systems set oh, up. And like, fully got, set up. Yeah, a bunch of coolers with food and things. So those crews get um, packed in with the help of um, pack strings. So oftentimes mules, but uh, we've been recently using um, llamas as well. Um, so they'll pack in kind of early June, and then they work – Basically, the snow-free months up high is June through the end of September, um, and they work. Yeah, like like I said, eight-day hitches where they're they're on for eight days and they're off for five or six days, and then they hike back in. And each day, depending on how far their work site is, it could be anywhere from an hour and a half to two-hour hike just to get from base camp mm. to where they're working. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I'm wait complaining about way, like, that's right? your my commute, my trucks. So oh, there's cold. so much <laughs> <laughs> traffic. Uh, I hate traffic. It's like oh, I got a two-hour hike just to get. Just to get work. to work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're they're usually up at about 3 a.m. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah. Eating, eating <laughs> breakfast, and they're on the trail. Uh, well, I mean, you want to get most stuff. of that work done t- before the storms come in, especially in the summer, right? If you're working that high on, yeah. on these peaks, um, thunderstorms is a big issue, so they're trying to get in basically a full day at work before 1 o'clock and try and get yeah,
0: back. Yeah, because then you got two hours. You're two hours from any shelter.
2: Yep. Yeah. It seems like, because I've been here for like 10 years, and even I've noticed the incredible amount of traffic, especially over the last like two or three years, mm-hmm. it's just got to like decimate the trail systems that aren't like
1: necessarily like established. Because there's a
2: grading system in there,
1: like an A, B, C. So that's something that we we came up with using research. So, you know, I mentioned that there were two planned routes when we first started. All the other ones were seeing severe resource damages. So once you once you get out of tree line and you enter the alpine, you enter a whole different ecosystem. So the plants that live up there are super resilient, they've, you know, they survive in freezing cold temperatures for eight or nine months out of the year. There's strong UV radiation, really harsh wind. So they're really like resilient plants. Just a few footsteps from a human can actually kill them off. They're super susceptible to the impacts of humans. So hiking off trail or hiking, you know, in these non-planned routes was causing a lot of damage to the, the rare plants. Sometimes they're not even found anywhere else on the globe. When we were planning our route on Mount Elbert, which is the state high point um, in the planning process, they stumbled up upon a plant that had been documented like less than 30 times worldwide. So, yeah, those will get crushed. And then in the planning process, when we're, when we're planning a new route, they'll try to avoid anything like that. They'll avoid areas that might be like archaeologically significant for Native American tribes or something like that. It seems like the front range just gets hammered. Yeah. One of the the programs that I work on in the summer months is actually studying hiking use. So we have uh, anywhere up to twenty three infrared trail counters that are scattered all across the state, and those uh, monitor hiking use twenty four seven. So in in May and June, I'm typically driving around the state, hiking the mountains, installing these trail counters, getting them ready for the hiking season, and then in the fall we go and we pull them out before the snow comes. What kind of volume is like the front range fourteen? Yeah, I years mean get? what's.
0: Last eight or 10 years, what, and obviously the trend's going up, but like what numbers, if you know, yeah. did you see, you know, then and then percentage increase to now?
1: Yeah. So, like, the biggest increase we've seen was in 2020. Obviously, like, pandemic summer, there wasn't a lot of things that people could do. So, everyone kind of flocked outdoors. And I think we saw that, you know, across the state, it wasn't just the 14ers. Like, the thing you could do to be safe, nobody knew what was going on, like, yeah. you could go hike outside. Um, prior year, To 2020, we saw a 40% increase in hiking use on the 14ers. So the busiest peaks were, you know, Mount Bierstadt, Quandary Peak, Grays and Torrey's Peaks. You can access those from the Denver metro area within an hour to an hour and a half. They're sometimes paved all the way to the parking lot. So it's not like you have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle to get there. They're shorter routes. They're easier routes, you know, that don't require any like technical climbing or, you know. Um, scrambling or anything like that. Quandary peak that year saw 50,000 people from June through the end of September.
2: What would be like a pre pandemic number for that? 30 to 35,000. Oh, so substantial, substantial increase there. Yeah. Is there a benefit to making sure that we don't pave all of these? I mean, just like the harder they are to get to the more right. Sustainable that would be right. Cause only a certain amount of people could get to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then you're, then you're kind of getting into the, you know, the issues that are now as like equitable access for everyone, right? Like if you have a shuttle system, then people who might not traditionally be able to get there because they don't have a four wheel drive vehicle might be able to get there. But then you're also increasing the impacts on those, those, you know, native resources. So it's this delicate balance, right? Like there's always going to be some of these more remote peaks, more difficult places that, Certain people are just going to be excluded from getting there. What we've noticed with some of our research um, and the work that we're doing is if we actually install, we build a new trail, we build it of durable materials, things that can handle the foot traffic. You can have a handful of routes where there is 50,000 people. And if there's a sustainable trail and we can have money to build it and maintain it, it can actually handle that sort of traffic. I don't know
2: if I'm down with the whole equitable thing for everybody. I think...
1: I'm not
0: surprised. When you said that, I'm like, really? All the way to to getting people access to trails, we're talking about that, you know?
2: I'm just thinking about, like, Mount Huron is probably my favorite. Yeah. And it's a gnarly road to get up there. And then you usually have to camp the night before. Get up early. It's freezing cold. And then when you get to the top, there's the sense of, like, I earned this. As opposed to, like, uh, even like a grazing tourist where it's a pretty mellow drive. You can get there. You can wake up at your house. Drive up there and, and hit it. You just have a different like level. I, th- I think you need to suffer a little bit. Sure.
1: You know. I don't know. Something like Huron's probably never going to. They're sure. never going to yeah, pave, just, pave that road all the way back. Discriminator <laughs> against fourteen or
2: <laughs> I guess hiker, I hiker discrimination. <laughs> this guy. What's like the gnarliest one out there?
1: Uh, in terms of like at the danger level,
2: I guess one that you'd be like, hey, you need
1: to get a bunch under your belt before you do this. Capital Peak, uh, which is in the Elk Mountains right outside of Aspen. Pretty gnarly. One of the more deadly peaks.
0: What are we what are we talking that makes it deadly? Um, exposure and loose rock. So you're you're
1: climbing on a ridge or something towards or
0: yeah, you're just so, going
1: up a steep grade. You know, and something like that will maintain basically the approach to the summit. We'll get about the first six miles of the approach up to that. And then you're on a ridge line. That one in particular has this It's it's gorgeous and it's probably why it's so popular and like people who are maybe less experienced go to it. They see it on Instagram or YouTube videos and they're like, I want to go do that. It's called the Knife Edge. It's a hundred, maybe two hundred foot long section where you're on. Maybe it's a foot wide, maybe it's twelve inches or eight inches wide in certain sections, and on either side of you, it's a thousand foot drop. Oh. Um, so people will straddle uh, it, exactly like you know, <laughs> <laughs> scoot across I don't, I don't want to do that. But so, have you I sk- I, I'll probably never do that one. Yeah. And in particular, like the Elk Mountains, there's a handful of them, which are, require a little bit of this like high exposure climbing. Those mountains have really rotten rock. So a lot of times when people fall, it's like they reach for a handhold and that rock just falls off.
2: So will you guys go and mark climbing routes too? Or
1: is it, you're just doing trails? Yeah, we're just doing trails. We don't get into any of the, like, technical stuff. One, it'd be, be way too dangerous to have crews, paid people working up there, volunteers working up there. And two, like, we do want to maintain, like, the natural kind of idea of mountaineering, right? Like so route, putting route up and, is not something that kind of no, takes away from that. the romance of, right.
2: you know, mountaineering.
1: Yeah, and there aren't a whole lot of 14ers where you'd have to climb with ropes. You, you could do Capital Peak with a rope. Do you, do you guys,
2: uh, when you guys are doing your route planning, um, take into account like evacs, um, like evacuating injured people off of mountains and stuff like that? Not
1: particularly, no. Yeah. Um, we, we work with a lot of those rescue groups, though. A lot of those are volunteer-based rescue groups. Um, we've worked with them to try and help you know raise awareness. They've done interviews for us on a lot of our educational videos on YouTube to talk about all sorts of different topics you know preparedness and weather safety and that sort of thing
2: it's funny when you're going and you're at the trailhead and you see people in jeans and they're holding like a half-filled plastic water bottle you're like oh what you are
0: not making. we're gonna do a 14er and i'm gonna show up like that it's good just because i love
2: this dude so we're i he paced me during the leadville 100 last year (laughs) (laughs) and uh so he picked me up at mile 60 i'm like I'm toast. I just got down from Hope's Pass for the second time, yeah. and uh, I roll in, and I'm like, can't wait to get a pacer. He shows up, and he probably doesn't have it here, but it's like this computer bag. It's not a computer Comput- bag. It's
0: actually a rucksack, but I just com- put my computer, computer in, it, so bag. he likes to call it a computer bag. <laughs> Whatever. Call and, it a computer And
2: bag. his fire gloves. Okay. As, so I,
0: I, his- I got what we call, well, we call it the station. I got bitch hands and feet, more or less, but... Uh, Rayna, I mean, more yeah. or less, I mean, sure. they, they just go white, so the cold just crushes me okay until they warm back up. He's like a great Dane, man. So
2: you the body just was not mess
1: with him and like you know, get into his thing. No, that's just me, that's okay. what I do. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. well, if you think about it like, I don't think humans were meant to be his size, so the infrastructure inside your body is not built to bring heat all the way to them fingers, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I had uh, what did I, what did I have? I had uh, shoes, you didn't like my shoes either. I thought I had, like, boots on or something like that. Oh, did you? Yeah, because I ran in those. Chacos. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <didn't> like, <laughs> didn't like those. No, I'll, but I'll, I'm going to show up in jeans and half a water I can make it on half a water bottle.
2: I just, you yeah. know, you see those people who are like, oh, you don't yeah, see it. No. Oh, chance. yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah, especially on the front range 14ers, you can show up. If you're going on a weekend, you're going to see a lot of people that are unprepared.
2: What do you think is, like, a good pack out for a 14er? Like, what would it be I mean, some things you'd be like, hey, you definitely need to have this stuff?
1: Oh, extra layers for sure. I mean, for me, I I just know my body having spent a lot of time out there and up at 14,000 feet. Like, I need to drink a lot of water. Otherwise, I get headaches and kind of like neck pain and stuff. So, yeah. I, I usually drink two to three liters of water. Usually, it's two liters of water and like an extra liter with electrolytes or something like that. Extra food. Um, you know, I always have a rain jacket in the backpack. And usually I'd never even pull it out once. So it's just the sort of thing that lives in the bottom of the backpack. Yeah. You know, being that we are kind of more knowledgeable, like we, we carry first aid kits and I always got like extra food and stuff like that. I'm probably one of the people you look at and you're like, are you staying overnight here? You know, you <laughs> got like so much gear. So it's like, it's just extra weight and you know, it's good for training. When
2: do you, cause you got a two year old, right? Yep. When do you think you'd bring your kid on something like that?
1: Uh, to go like to go to the summit next couple years maybe like oh so young when he maybe when he could actually like be able he talks now but like could verbalize if he's feeling hey I don't feel so good or I have a headache or like something like that where he could tell me that he's not feeling good throwing him in the pack and and carrying him up right now at 30 pounds would would not be the most enjoyable. So, if he can at least hike a little bit of it on his right. own, that could be cool too. Well, there's so. this
0: breakover point though, because if they're yeah, they big enough to walk, they don't go in the pack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but then they're too big to carry if something goes wrong. Oh, you know? Yeah, You're
2: I'm at the, the top like, and you're like, I'm hey, I'm tired.
0: I, we yeah, did it. You're, not, you're not, like, don't. well, you're only halfway, buddy. Right. Yeah. We got to hike all the way down this yeah, thing. They yeah. They decide they want to quit. It's going to be miserable.
2: Is there a good like starter 14er if you're coming from out of state and you're like, hey, I just want to knock one out? And the, like people, we were talking, at the station like a lot of people will go to longs yeah because it's close anything. and they're like dude this is one of like the deadliest mountains we have
1: yeah it's also one of the longer routes uh, yeah and there's yeah a lot of people that die on that almost every year so like Beerstat from the west would be a decent Yeah, from Guanella pass it's paved all the way yeah. there um it's i think it's less than three miles to the summit um you know, it's it's a gorgeous mountain. There's yeah. going to be a lot of other people up there with you, but it's super cool. You know, you can yeah. like see the Sawtooth, which connects over to Mount Evans. Um, that's typically a first time fourteener. Greys and Tories is a, a pretty uh, high traffic peak because you can, if you're feeling up for it, get two peaks in the same day. Yeah. Quandary Peak, right outside of Breckenridge. Again, paved trail access.
0: What about Evans from like Echo Lake? Yeah. I mean, that's easy. It's kind of easy,
2: isn't yeah. it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think Sherman was my first one, yep. and that one was, I thought,
1: super, super, short. E- super yeah. short, super easy. A little bit, you know, you don't have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle, but definitely further out to get to. So yeah. I would say most people's first 14ers probably quandary or beer stat, something like that.
2: It's the other thing I love is seeing people driving up the trailhead in, like, this rented Honda Civic, and I'm like, oh, man, Hertz is going to be
1: pissed at you. <laughs> <laughs> get the insurance. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. Yeah, I was behind a guy in a... You know, four door sedan a, a couple of years ago, and like literally, he'd stop every few feet, and he'd get out and like look at a rock to see if he could drive over it, oh, and he'd get back in. It was like, oh, you're that gonna, is infuriating. It would be taking a long time to get up here, if you're <laughs> going to do that. For every <laughs> rock. Yeah. So, the
0: initiative. Yep. I mean, other than trail, like building trails, maintaining trails, and you talked about like ecosystem preservation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the other goals or initiatives that? like the company works on
1: so education is a big one for us Um, we utilize volunteers and staff on the mountain to educate people about leave no trace ethics like responsible recreation practices Um, we have volunteers that'll sign up over the course of the summer to go out for like three or four days and they essentially just hike the mountain oftentimes they'll start at the trailhead and kind of let people get get going on the mountain and they'll talk to them at the trailhead about like hey you know like You're entering this different ecosystem. Here's why it's important to stay on the trail. Like if you've got a dog with you, you know, there are pika and marmot and things up here that don't really have natural predators like a dog. So we need to keep your dog on a leash. That's like, there's also mountain goats and things that could attack your animal. So um, just general education on the mountain. Um, That's expanded over time. We've got a a YouTube library now with um, almost 70 educational videos where we talk about, alpine ecology and wildlife, um, avalanche safety, introduction to climbing some of those harder peaks, like what do you need, you know, helmets and additional equipment that you might might need to go to class three, class four peaks. And then, you know, we help design trailhead kiosks and things like that for the Forest Service.
2: When you say class
1: three, class four, is that the Yosemite system or what? So the way I always think about it is, is like most of the 14ers are probably class two, which means you're kind of on two feet the whole time. You're never going to have to encounter any terrain where you're using your hands to scramble or something. Yeah. I think of class three as like, there's probably often times where you might be using a third appendage or a limb to like hang on to a rock or help boost yourself up over a bigger boulder. Class four, you're probably going to have four points of contact, maybe both hands, probably more exposure. Um, potential like if you were to fall, you're yeah. getting seriously injured or. So that's dying. like longs. Um, that would enter into probably class three, maybe low class four terrain, depending on the route you do. There are class five routes on Longs Peak, uh, class five. Then that's when you get into the Yosemite ranking of like five, one, five, nine. And that's like difficulty of climbing with a rope.
2: You talked about encountering wildlife. And before we started, we were talking about Waterton Canyon, Mm -hmm. which is like a, something I've found relatively new this, this summer, And uh, they have these bighorn sheep that will just walk the path. And you have these people who just got here from out of state, and they'll come right up to these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, this thing could kill you in a second. And people just don't have an appreciation for, like, yeah, wildlife is really wild out here.
1: (laughs) Again, like front range peaks, I think... Maybe the animals are a little bit more accustomed to seeing all the people. Yeah. You've got a peak like Quandary. There's, there's mountain goats up there almost every time you go. They're used to seeing 50,000 people over the course of a summer, so they're not going to be maybe as aggressive. But yeah, you get down to some of those more remote peaks. Uh, you got something like a mountain goat or a bighorn sheep. Yeah, I wouldn't be like approaching it to take a selfie with it for sure.
2: Have you ever gotten into a jam up on one of the peaks? To do what? Have you ever gotten in trouble up on one of the peaks having the weather come in and
1: um, I've been scared off a couple of peaks. Uh, for the longest time, Castle Peak out in uh the Elk Mountains was we have a trail counter there was kind of like my nemesis. I could just couldn't get to the summit because I'd oh, go really? do the work and then yeah, it's not like a difficult peak, but like you'd get there and you're doing the work and then you know, you're kind of socked in into this valley, and so you can't really see what's coming. And so, you know, had a couple of times where either Got there and it was like totally iced over and fogged in. It looked like you were hiking inside of a ping pong ball because you couldn't see like five feet in front of you. But then, yeah, another time where just this th- thunderstorm came right yeah. over the ridge and you're it was running bearing down on you and the lightning. Off the Ugh,
2: yeah, that's feeling terrible. the
1: terrible, feeling the hair on the yeah. back of your hands and your head stand up. And then, and then, what's the plan? Uh, try and get down as fast as you can. Okay. Fortunately for me, like I'm, I'm pretty good at running, so like I'll just bust it, you know, yeah. all the way back down to tree line. Uh, if you're up there in like an actual electrical storm, you assume the position, right? Like, uh, try and get as low as you can with, uh, basically only your feet or your tippy toes kind of contacting. You basically squat down and <laughs> get rid of your trekking poles or whatever you've got with you that you kiss might... your ass. So <laughs> you're
0: in a squat and you are saying you're up on your toes. Yeah. Basically
1: hugging your knees, right? Yeah, Kind of. And that will... Just yeah. less contact with yeah. the ground? keep you lower, yeah. Because especially if you're above tree line, you're the tallest thing. Yeah, has so anybody ever been
0: struck by lightning with, in that position and they it, oh. it kind of
1: reduced? I mean, is there research the or is idea. there results? Of, that's
2: what Ben told me. That's what he told
1: you to do too? Yeah. Yeah. There have been plenty of people on the 14ers that have been struck. Yeah. On Bierstadt a handful of years ago, that lightning struck and knocked 10, 12 people down on the ground <sighs> and had some injuries. I don't think there were any deaths, but um, yeah. No, thanks, man.
0: How long does it take you to get back on a 14er after that? Never?
2: Oh, I bet you there's some people that would, like, go right back up and be like, hey, yeah. man, now I got super." How you guys super feeling? Let's finish. Yeah, let's do We're this. almost there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that we have this many people coming here and experiencing this type of, of wildlife, I think, it gives you, like, a really cool perspective on life in general. Yep. But it also kind of takes away, I think, from when you're going up there and you're all by yourself and you have that moment on the peak and there's no one else around. Yeah. It's a little different when there's, like, a line waiting to get up there. And people I don't have think their... I'd
0: enjoy that as much, no, going up it's... the trail. I mean, I don't mind seeing people, but I feel like most of the 14 ers I did, I saw, like, 50 people max right. between up and down, and that seems enjoyable. But, you know, starting a hike like you would, like, not even on – some of these front-range 14ers, but let's just say, like, you know, Littleton-Golden area. Yeah. Just the amount of people... I wouldn't want to hike a 14er like that.
2: No, and I'd, for some reason, it seems like uh, people like to listen to their, like, music without headphones, yeah. and it's, like, really loud and super annoying. So you're, like, in the middle of nature, and then, like, you hear T-Pain coming from,
1: <laughs> like, right <laughs> behind you.
2: It really takes away from, like, the, the enjoyment of it. And so I think it's going to push people... Maybe it's not, but I would imagine it would push people who enjoy the outdoors even deeper in sure.
1: and maybe expose them to
2: some things that maybe they're not
1: ready for. Yeah the the 13ers is kind of the next uh, the next step after people are over the 14ers you know you well, get, there's less people the views are just as less people more primitive amazing and the views are better because then you're on a 13er looking over at the 14er which is, is there really a 13er big. initiative maybe we should start that there's Tom. not They'd have a big uh, they'd have their work cut out for them. I think there's 13 thirteeners.
0: All right, maybe we have a lot more. How many, are, uh, how many 14ers? Uh,
1: depending on how you classify it with mountaineering standards, it's 54 to 58. Um, there's a ranking system that says that two peaks that are side by side, if they're connected by a saddle, from the saddle there has to be 400 or more feet of elevation gain between the two. Like Grays and Tories? Grays and Tories, yep. that classifies as two separate peaks, yep. whereas there are some that are side by side where it would actually be like just considered a sub-peak. The point might still be over fourteen thousand feet, but it's
0: so. The, there's space. a group of them off of like Kite Lake, Breckenridge. Which mm-hmm. one uh, is that?
1: Democrat? Yeah, Democrat Lincoln Bross, and then Cameron. Is Are those one of all those. classified as? Cameron is the one that's classified as it's not necessarily. Okay, so you technically 14. have three correct. Okay, I think most people that do Cameron and all, that that loop, um, you know, counted as four. You were out there. You did it. Yeah, I did that
0: years ago and. Man, I'll never forget sleeping in a tent on ink a... It's terrible. Yeah, kind of I don't. Or... Yeah. 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 I mean, it why just, was it so bad? Uh, it's you know the ground is not rocky ground. I wasn't prepared. That's oh, okay. That way, right. I could <laughs> yeah. justify it all I want. I just I wasn't. It was bad. You were. But, but, I mean, you got a ton. it done. It's just you, packing you were packing. and You're
2: like,
1: ah, this will be fine. Set a tent up. Yeah. You know, oh, this will be great. Yeah. yeah it's it like you're you're already above treeline at that point, so. Yeah. It's not forgiving. I it's mean, actually, windy.
0: the weather Exposed didn't and, It didn't get that bad. It was just more or less asleep. Uh, you know,
2: I just wasn't prepared with the, sure. taking care of the ground. Some of those 14ers are on, like, the access is on private property. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah, so the four that we just mentioned, um, the Summit of Bross is entirely privately owned, and it's technically closed to um, public access. Who owns it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's a family that's that's owned it uh, for a long time, old mining claims, um, and he owns a lot of a lot of the trails uh, crosses through private land on Democrat as well as kind of over by Lincoln. Um, so it's like this weird patchwork of private land and Forest Service land all throughout that area.
0: I got to um, think with you guys that might be that is that is, a
1: priority to like keep it, those relationships. So, so that's our next our next uh, kind of initiative that we've started jumping into um, in 2021. Um, the private landowner decided that he wanted to close access. So previously you could go up Democrat, you could do Cameron and you could do Lincoln. And then he asked that you skip the summit of Bross and you bypass it and come back down. So he, he closed the access to the peaks from May through mid August. That's one of the probably five busiest peaks in the state typically would see 20 to 30,000 people that year. It dropped to like 7,000 people. Um, so we were in communication with that landowner, um, talking with him, the town of Alma, the Forest Service, other stewardship group, trying to help him figure out his concern was liability. You know, people mm. hiking off the trail, finding an old mine and falling into it, getting injured and suing him. Um,
0: That's legit. I would, yeah, totally. Know, because of this day and age, it'd be like, well, this, we hiked through your land and you didn't mark it or anything. Right. Even though they're, yeah. they could, he could technically say they were trespassing, but who wants to even get into that?
1: Yeah, so this this all like goes back to a case that happened uh, several years ago um, that kind of set a precedent for the Colorado recreational use statute. Previously, landowners had assumed that they had um, were absolved of liability because of this Colorado recreational use statute. And then it was somewhere down in the springs uh, on one of the military bases. There's like a public path that goes through it uh, through the base. There was a, a divot or a big pothole on the trail some guy riding a bike, you know, crashed into it, got super injured, ended up suing the military base. And so that set this precedent where all these landowners were like, whoa, does right. that mean that if somebody gets injured, we're no longer protected? And so a lot of people were kind of, that do have private land that crosses through our trails cross through them, um, you know, spooked them. So people were, there have been numerous um, different private lands that have kind of shut down access to it. We worked with the guy on Democrat to help him, figure out um, verbiage and put up signs basically absolving him of the liability, notifying people like, hey, you're crossing into private land. Um, but, yeah, we're we're kind of on that next level of trying to work with landowners to maintain public access, whether that's through um, easements or potentially purchasing some of that private land so that we can build trails through it and maintain it. Um, we actually own the summit of one of the mountains. Which one? Uh, Mount Chavano. So... For numerous years through our our research program where we went in 2011 to 2013, one of my colleagues hiked all the routes. He took foot-by-foot detailed notes, um, uh, GPS-based notes of the trail conditions. So, like, where is there severe erosion? How far is the source material that we need to, like, you know, build structures? Where do we need to put a structure like a staircase or a rock wall? Where have we already built something? It might need to be maintained. So we've got inventories of all the trails and their conditions. That's where the report card that you mentioned earlier yeah. um, comes in with like a letter grade and the, the amount estimated to bring it up. So this this route, Mount Shavano, um, which is down by Salida, Colorado, was rated the worst, worst route in the state, and it just continued to get worse basically because probably 95% of the mountain or the trail is on national forests, so we could... We could maintain that, but then a portion of it near the summit crossed through private land. So, for us to be able to build a brand new trail and you know fix all these resource issues, the Forest Service wasn't going to let us do that because there's no way to do do the full trail without crossing through private land. So mm-hmm. they just weren't weren't making it a priority. Um, so we then looked into like well, what can we do? Started looking at uh, the prices of like high alpine mining claims and what they were going for and. Um, ended up raising $50,000. We bought three of the mining claims, which we still own, and that allows us to reroute the trail, and we're building a brand-new trail up there.
2: So ultimately. are you guys concerned about, I mean, if someone trips over a log that you guys put up there, I mean, is that are you guys concerned about
1: that stuff too? So we've got signs up there, you know, basically letting people know, okay, this is, we own this land, here's the plan. Ultimately, we'd, we're going to donate it back to the Forest Service. It'll become public land. We're, we're actually working with a legislator um, to potentially kind of make some changes to that Colorado recreational use statute as well. So hopefully that changes, you know, a lot of the, the private landowner issues that they have. So, so do
0: the signs, is that, I mean, you guys have done the research on the it. At the moment,
1: does... that's kind of what you can do, yeah.
0: And that should absolve a private?
1: Yeah, we're, we're letting you use, you know, use this. It's a recreational destination. We're giving you access, but just know that, like, You're climbing a mountain. There are inherent risks, thunderstorms, avalanches, rockfall.
2: We need something like that at the firehouse about hurt feelings. Like you are now entering station whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You are. (laughs) Your feelings need to be left at the door. Yeah, you no, know, it absolve us from everything. There you
1: go. Right. No, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, not sorry. gonna happen. I wish I could, but it's a great idea. You got to sign. Yeah, uh, then it requires people to read it. Well, I didn't read the sign. Uh, oh, so I'm signing something.
2: Another sign-off.
0: So you okay. show up at work. Yep. And got to sign it's a in. Release. Yeah, a, <laughs> a liability release.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think when you told that story. Like, there's a lid for every pot. There's a job out there for everyone. This yeah. dude walked how many trails and took foot by foot notes. I mean, if you want to do something, man, you can make a job out of it.
1: Yeah, he went to school for landscape architecture, and he's now our field programs director, so he manages all of the the projects that we have in the field. And, uh, yeah, he's been doing it for 13, 14 years.
2: How long do you guys usually stick around? Like, you have
1: seasonal workers. Correct. So our full-time staff, we have five people full-time, including myself. Um, I've been around for seven, going on eight years. Our executive director has been there for almost 14 years. Our field programs guy has been there for 13 years. We just lost our controller that did did the finances. He was there for 11 or 12 years. And then, you know, we've got two people that are kind of like super seasonals. They work nine months out of the year. They help with the hiring process and planning all the projects as well. They've been there both more than a decade. Um, And then in the summer months, we grow drastically so all the the people that are actually building the trails doing the work Um, last year we had 31 seasonal crew members um, and they were there from basically the end of may through uh, beginning of october do you
0: find like other industries that manual labor industries do you find that you're not immune to the kind of work ethic and the the i guess the quality and amount of work that is can be put out by your you know i guess interns college kids people in their 20s it's
1: getting it's getting harder for us for sure to find people that want to do this sort of job because it's tough yeah who wants to wake up at 3 a.m every day on waking up on the ground right and then hike two hours you're hiking thousands of feet of elevation over the course of the summer and then once you get to the work site you're doing manual labor moving 500 pound rocks and
0: yeah and everybody else is up there with you and if you aren't pulling your weight oh it's like they might they might just leave you up
2: there yeah like hey, man, a bear got him i don't know what to <laughs> <tell you. laughs>
1: so yeah it's it's certainly getting harder for us um you know we have every year one or two people that sign up thinking that they're going to make it and then we go through a, two weeks of training and a lot of times we have one or two people that quit before the season what even do you starts. see
0: do you just see kind of like the deer in the headlights when they see what their
1: itinerary is going to be and you yeah, know you that, wake that up, one's gone you're dealing with like finishing your work day in the rain and hiking down in the rain every day and then getting back and going to sleep in a tent like oh, yeah there, it, it requires it like a, this it requires a certain person that wants to do that sort of work and we're we're struggling to find people that are one qualified to do it um two but yeah that, that want to do it for the the amount that we can pay
2: what about fundraising it seems like everyone's everything's donor based for you guys right
1: so yeah that's one of my responsibilities the executive director and i are in charge of fundraising um we've got a pretty diversified portfolio so some of it comes from federal sources um it used to be a lot more than it is now the forest service which is our main partner used to have larger contracts where they'd give us more money it's dwindled over the years Um, so that's why we've kind of started branching out Uh, we get quite a bit of funding from the state of Colorado so here the lottery program funds trails and open spaces so there's a competitive grant program that we apply for Um, our organizations typically the top funded project every year that will be 200 to 250 thousand dollar grant for two years we work with a lot of um, family foundations as well as some national foundations Corporations is probably our smallest chunk. You know, local are you
0: are a nonprofit like five hundred one c three? Is that what your classified is? Okay, Correct. so you can. I mean, that's nice that you can take donations that can be tax deductible from Correct. people. Yeah, yeah,
1: and that's that's become our largest um, source of funding is individual donations. So, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are hiking these peaks. They come across our crews out there. They learn about us. They're interested in it. And um, yeah, this year twenty twenty two was our first year is over two million dollars in revenue and I'm trying to think of where we were at probably 7 to 800,000 of that was from individual donations
0: your revenue's up but obviously the costs everything's up too so is i mean does that mean you're in a good spot or does that mean you're just kind of on par with
1: well i mean competing for a lot of these like competitive grant programs we're always at the whim of like if we don't get that $250,000 state trails grant like that means we might have to just completely cancel a project and drop four people before the season starts. So it's always this delicate balance. Um, You know, we've been building larger reserves and endowments as we have, um, you know, positives at the end of the year. So that's been good. Yeah, we've been doing really well. Um, This will be our first year, again, where we're paying higher wages for, for people as well. So, yeah, costs are certainly getting more expensive.
2: How much would it cost for you, (laughs) <laughs> to go ahead and work on one of these projects where you're sleeping in a tent. How much hiking, how,
0: hiking how much in, would it how much would I require? You. Yeah. I need to experience a night or two first. I think I think you know I, how bad I don't think I appreciate as much as I could even imagine. I don't think I could appreciate maybe how miserable it might be at times. Okay. Yeah. So well I need to go for a couple of days.
2: You know then. how much you make now. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And and we don't have good nights, right? A lot of sleepless nights. How much would it take for you to, to just a season, right? How long's a season? A couple months? Four months. Okay, four yeah. months. Living Craig, up.
0: Craig, if it's below fifty <laughs> degrees. It will be. Probably. Will be I know. Night. Every day, every night pretty much. Yeah.
2: Give me now, a ballpark. I'm pop. gonna
0: burn out those. Propane stoves in like two days.
2: Of course you will. You're like, <laughs> how do I get to 80 degrees in here?
0: Can we just build a permanent pipeline up here?
2: Give me a round. Give me a round number.
0: How much would it take? Yeah. Like I have to do this. Yeah. Half what I make, maybe. I mean, I don't think I. I don't think that job probably.
2: No, I'm saying like, how much would it cost? How much would it, it take for you to do that job?
1: That's what I'm saying. Like probably. They get paid hourly. So if you're an intern, you're probably closer to like $19 an hour. If you're an experienced crew leader, you're closer to $30 an hour. That's not bad.
2: You get paid to sleep? No.
1: Oh.
2: <laughs> 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 okay. Not like the fire department. No. Yeah, I'm going to say that's a if six that's a sleep, six-figure that job be, for
0: me. If you got paid to sleep, that would be which would make it probably a six-figure job. Yeah.
2: I just I'm I'm incredibly impressed with the people who are doing that for for the money that they're making
1: yeah I'm, I'm too old for it now there's only one person in our organization who makes six figures that's the the executive director so we're all doing this because we're passionate about it yeah. and it's not you know certainly not making a lot of money doing it
2: That's what's so cool I mean even like I think about uh, our buddy Ben who's been on the show and he works for Outward Bound yeah. it's like it is hard enough to find people to go out and do manual labor yeah and then you add in the hey, you're gonna be sleeping outside. You're gonna be doing hard work all day long, and there's still people lining up. I mean, less than normal, or I shouldn't say normal, less than there used to be. Yeah. But there still is like a group of people who are totally down. For sure. I'm very impressed by that. Yeah. Because I would not be one of those people. They burn out of it pretty quick.
1: Like, I mean, what's we... the t- what's the tenure of like a seasonal for, worker for seasonals? probably like two to three seasons. We have some people that have been doing it for five to seven seasons. But more, more often than not, I think we've got people that maybe do one season and then they move on to something different.
2: What do you think if, uh, if people got like benefits, do you think that stick around longer, like health insurance, like what, like you, what you would get if you were a full-time employee?
1: So we do have quite a few benefits. We've, um, pretty unique in that we offer free housing for our crew members when they're not on their project. Oh, so huge. we have a remote base of operations up near Leadville. Uh, we have a, a cabin that's actually a forest service cabin with like where we keep our tools and store stuff. And then there's two yurts so you can stay there for free when you're off. You know, we get per diem. there's health insurance. We're always at this like, we're, we're pretty competitive with federal jobs. So like working for the park service mm. or the, the U S forest service, those are easier jobs and they're longer duration. Even if it's a seasonal job, you know, we have a really short window of time that's snow free at 14,000 feet that we can work. So we're always competing against people who have longer seasons can offer those benefits because um, they have longer seasons and like Yeah, you might work a little bit closer to the front range so you can go home at the end of the night and sleep in your own bed and you're not in, like, a remote base camp. So,
2: It seems like Colorado has more public lands than a lot of other states. Sure. So does the Forest Service take care of what you guys do in the states that are pretty much all either government or, or private?
1: Yeah, I mean, as the federal funding for a lot of those programs, like the Forest Service has, you know, gotten smaller and smaller over the years uh they require more on like stewardship groups nonprofits like our organizations so there's a bunch of different groups in colorado that do similar work to us we're the only ones who work specifically on the 14ers you know there's volunteers for outdoor colorado they work at local parks and some of the mountain trails like in golden area there's boulder open space and jeffco open space so a lot of different um stewardship groups here in Colorado and we we partner with a lot of them too so
0: 58 you said 14ers yeah around that and there's always somebody that's doing it like they do 58 like all one year they do them all right for sure what's the like the greatest feat you know of when in relation to 14ers and like one guy hiking them is
1: uh, uh there's uh I mean there's always people trying to like set the record um as far as like the, the shortest amount of time, fastest time, or doing it, you know, all in a calendar winter skiing them all. Winter, uh, ah, no, nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> that's
1: no. no. Yeah, there's a a guy and his um, partner. I don't I don't know if they're married or not. Um, Andrew Hamilton and Andrea Sansone. They're both Uber athletes. I think he did the Centennials, which is the top 100 peaks, all in a summer um and she recently set a woman's record i can't remember what it was i think it was most 14ers in a 12 hour period or something like How that 12, 12 hours, probably or
2: something 12 and
1: 12 hours
2: you gotta plan that you
1: I mean it's like you got support plan. systems too like you know you finish it and somebody picks you up in a van and they've got food for you and they're driving you to the next place and then you're doing it um there are other people who try to do it kind of all on their own um there's a guy who was now down in durango as a black diamond spa- sponsored athlete Joe Grant, a few years ago, he started by bicycle uh, at a, out of his home in Gold Hill, and he rode across the state and ran all the 14ers in 30 days with only riding his bike and running the 14ers.
2: You know, I can't wait to have my wife listen to this because she's sick of my shit, and I don't do stuff like that. you'd <laughs> be thankful, honey. Yeah, yeah, yeah at, at least I'm not, not doing at that. At least I'm not that. Right. I can. You want me to start? <laughs> I mean, that's your whole life.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. it's a lifestyle, you know. I mean, I think along the lines of he was saying, you know, people come to work for 14er Initiative because it's they're passionate about. It. I mean, that's that's what that guy loves to do.
2: Yeah, yeah. a
1: lot you of know? times they're sponsored too, so they you know make videos and things out of yeah. it. They're getting, they're getting paid to do it, or it's part of a contract probably to have some of these things going on. It's impressive.
2: Oh, it's oh, super sure. impressive.
1: Yeah. I mean, not only that uh, that you
2: are. That you're into that stuff, but you have a support network that will be down too. Because that athlete might be sponsored, mm-hmm. but the people in the vans are friends and yeah, you know stuff like that. For
1: sure. Yeah.
2: Thanks, dude. This oh, is yeah. awesome. I mean, how can people either donate or you know find out more or volunteer?
0: I mean, honestly, that's what you guys need more yeah. than anything. Right? Is is you just need good faith donations to support everything going
1: forward, right? Yeah, a handful of ways people can get involved. Uh, our website is 14ers.org, so that's one 4 ers.org. There's another website called 14ers.com. A lot of people kind of confuse us. That la- that's a landing page for anybody that wants to get resources on, you know, what is the route that I'm supposed to be taking, what's the trailhead conditions. You can get basically day-by-day day updates of, hey, there's snow in this part of the trail. There's not. We're .org. That's the dot .com. Yeah, you can sign up with us to volunteer. We have single-day and multi-day opportunities to volunteer. A lot of the single-day stuff is on the Front Range 14ers. The multi-days are like four- or five-day projects where you go a little bit more remote. You work out of a remote base camp and get up each day to go work higher on the mountain. Um, yeah, donations, obviously, is probably the biggest way you help, can help because without that, you know, we don't have the money to, to fund trail crews that are doing it.
2: And you can do that through the website?
1: Yeah, 14ers.org. Follow us on social media. We were on Facebook and Instagram. We have the educational YouTube library on YouTube as well. So. I'm to get Tom signed up for one of those multi-day jobs. Yeah. Who? You. <laughs>